neuroscientist Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor once said, Accepting is knowing that a person is gone, that they will never return, that there is nothing to be done about things that happen in their lifetime, that regrets and goodbyes are part of the past. Accepting is focusing on life as it is now, without the deceased person, without forgetting the deceased person. Welcome back, heart friends. In this episode, we're going to look at grief and grieving through the lens of neuroscience. And we'll focus mostly on the death of a partner, although it can relate to any kind of significant loss. And I have studied various podcasts and a primary book called The Grieving Brain by Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. So please keep in mind that most of the words I say in this episode are from these resources. But on occasion, I'll inject my own personal experience or comments from previous episodes. Now to keep this podcast at an acceptable length of time, I can't quote all of the studies that they did to get all these observations and conclusions. But a lot of times they used interviews or functional MRIs. And these scans tell what parts of our brain light up when we're exposed to certain pictures, etc. As well, they studied small animals called voles, V-O-L-S. Now, it turns out our brain prefers habits and prediction over new information. And our brain devotes lots of effort to mapping where our loved ones are while they're alive so we can find them when we need them. So over the thousands of days spent with a partner, our brain encodes bonds, and these tight bonds build a deep-seated belief about our connection to our partner. Many pairs of neurons are built and fire when partners are present or when we think of them. Losing our one and only overwhelms us because we need our loved ones as much as we need food and water. Our brain has a problem to solve, and it's not a trivial problem. Our brain struggles to learn new information that cannot be ignored, like the absence of a loved one. Our hippocampus, which is a seahorse-shaped part of our brain, has a map built into it from all our experiences from the past. Again, during those thousands of days spent with our partner, this map is deeply routed with connections with our partner. Our brain knows where to find our partner, even if they're not in our presence. For example, they could be at work or visiting their parents. So even though they're not here in front of us, we know how to find them. Now, grieving requires a difficult task of throwing out this map we have used to navigate our lives together and transform our relationships with this person who has died. Grieving or learning to live a meaningful life without our loved one is ultimately a type of learning. Because learning is something we do all our lives, seeing grieving as a type of learning may make it feel more familiar and understandable and give us the patience to allow this remarkable process. Learning improves our ability to adapt. In healthy grieving, our ability to adapt allows us to work through the pain. Those with very little prior knowledge can be exposed to new information like grief education. 
And initially in acute grief, which I call macro grief, we're just trying to stay upright to put one foot in front of the other and hope that those feet are wearing matching shoes. Now down the journey a little, new strategies for learning can help us get a repertoire or a toolkit of things to try when we feel overwhelmed by the pang of grief and overwhelmed by the new and stressful reality that we're living in. Our brain is trying to solve a problem when faced with the absence of the most important person in our life. Grief is a heart-wrenching, painful problem for the brain to solve. And grieving necessitates learning to live in a world with the absence of someone we love deeply, who is ingrained in our understanding of the world. For our brain, our loved one is simultaneously gone and also everlasting. And we are walking through two worlds at the same time. We navigate our life despite the fact that they have been stolen from us. A premise that makes no sense and is both confusing and upsetting. Our hippocampus map expects our partner to still be there and we expect this for a long time until it can be reprogrammed over time. Now it turns out our brain uses object tracing cells and fires neurons every time we expect our loved one to be in a room. And this continues until we learn that our loved one is never going to be in our physical world again. We must update our map, creating a revised photograph of our new life. And this is why it takes so long for grief as we learn our new way around this new reality. This unlikely situation that they are not on our map at all sets off alarms and confusion and causes overwhelming grief. As humans, we map our loved ones in our virtual map, in our head, using three dimensions. Space, which is where, time, which is when, and close, which is attachment. And our brain doesn't understand why these dimensions can simply disappear when somebody dies. Our attachment need, the need for the comfort and safety of our loved ones, requires us to know where they are. When you think of our brain map and here, now, and closeness, this death presents a particularly devastating problem. Suddenly we're told that our loved one can no longer be located in space and time. On another level, this does not compute. The brain cannot predict this possibility because it's outside our brain's experience. And the idea that the person simply does not exist anymore does not follow the rules our brain has learned over a lifetime. So if the person we loved is missing, then our brain assumes they're somewhere else and will be found later. The action required in response to this absence is quite simple. Go look for them, cry out, text, call, or use any possible means to get their attention. As far as the brain is concerned, the idea that the person is simply no longer in this dimensional world is not a logical answer to their absence. Searching for our loved one after they've died is a very common experience. And neuroscientist Norman Schneck did an experiment that proved that the more people tried to suppress their thoughts of their loved ones, the more they actually thought of them. Dr. Mary O'Connor concluded that we need to discover new strategies to help bereaved people manage their painful thoughts 
in the present moment, since avoidance does not help them very much in the long run. So a lot of signs are leaning towards mindfulness as a proactive tool to help grieving people. For this reason, I will dedicate one or two episodes in the near future to mindfulness. Dr. O'Connor mentions, mindfulness is moving one's attention to awareness of here, awareness of now, and the awareness of close, the three dimensions. Neuroscientist Andrew Huberman also spoke about the three dimensions of space, time, and close. He said these three dimensions establish very close bonds with our living partner. When they die in our grieving, we require remapping and reorganization within our emotional and logical frame of our brain. And understanding this may give us greater insight into our grieving process. How we show up to grieve affects the journey, resulting in either non-complicated or complicated grief. And complicated grief is the group of grievers who cannot seem to pick up the pieces of their lives after the loss. It's not obvious if a person's in complicated or non-complicated grief in the beginning, because this only shows up later on if there is prolonged inability to deal with the loss. For some people, knowing where they are in their grief journey can help them understand their journey. Now back to Dr. O'Connor. If you're overwhelmed with missing your deceased partner and seek out something to remind you of them, to remind you of the time you spent together, that is one thing. And to us, that's like widower number one from the previous episodes. And if we're present and remembering the past with all the pain and sadness and bittersweetness of having known our loved ones, we are yearning. And this is the heart of grieving, is yearning. On the other hand, if after years of being without your partner, you've never touched their things, you've never went in their room, you've set up memorials, well, these things could be problematic. And this is what was happening to widower number two in our example, where they were trying to live in the past, pretending that time has stopped. And no matter how hard we try, we can't stop time. We actually need enough new lived experience for our brain to develop new predictions. And that takes a long time. Maybe we can think of our grief triggers as these experiences. And updating the brain map includes changing our prediction algorithm, learning the painful lessons and not filling in the gaps with the sight, sounds and sensations of our loved ones. And this can't be learned overnight. Again, maybe this can be learned through our triggers. However, we can allow our brain to have experiences day after day, which will help to update the little gray computer, which is our brain. Taking everything around us, which updates our virtual map and what a brain thinks will happen next, it's a good start to being resilient in the face of great loss. And to me, all of this reinforces that time does not heal grieving, but rather experience heals over time. And grieving requires neural rewiring as well. And this takes a long time. Next, Dr. O'Connor speaks about believing in magical thoughts. 
Bereaved people confirm that they live in two mutually exclusive beliefs happening at the same time. And one is that their loved ones had died, and the other is that they will magically return. It may be the cruelest aspect of our human nature that we can experience these incompatible mutual beliefs, both that our loved one is gone and that they can be found again. Dr. O'Connor mentions that memorials and burials are important as a help to reinforce that our loved one has died. And this helps our brain to prepare for the reality and reduce the time in magical thoughts. And she calls these conflicting streams gone but also everlasting theory. She believes that these conflicts make grieving a long process. Although these two thoughts contradict each other, both have to be updated as we learn to live with this big absence. She used the words, jump into your experience of grief and work it best with some support people. And I think this speaks to what David Kessler suggested is jumping into Grief River. And we've talked about in the past is finding people to witness our journey. Dr. O'Connor also speaks about a good trajectory for resilient grieving is a slow upward spiral, even though it doesn't feel good at first. And she used the example of your partner dying and you go to dinner with couples, and the first time is miserable, and maybe the second time is miserable. Then the third time, you realized you'd never tasted lobster bisque before, and you loved it. And then the fourth time, it was a little easier, and you can see this slow upward spiral through the pain. She also says when a person is not on an upward spiral, they can add to their grief by questioning themselves, by saying, is what they're doing normal? And this has the unfortunate effect of keeping the grief at the forefront of their mind. And it supports the idea I mentioned that somebody thought unresolved grief leads to more grief. She also talked about when we fall in love, and have a long-term relationship, our brain changes. And we can continue to use those same skills to change our brain as we move forward without our loved one being present. Healthy grieving requires being able to move our thoughts from relationships that were to relationships that are and to relationships that could be. And this is indicated by my logo, where we move from a cracked heart to being wholehearted. Having said this, the neural connections in bonding and chemical consequences in our brain we build with the deceased will remain with us forever, which means we will never forget them. When we choose to avoid negative feelings as widower number two did, neutral and positive feelings are also ignored at the same time because you can't just isolate one feeling. So this is a very steep price that widower number two is paying where they're missing out on neutral and joyous feelings. Dr. O'Connor said that grief is a very complex thing for the brain to deal with, involving brain regions that process emotions, take the perspective of another person, recall episodic memories, perceive familiar faces, regulate the heart, and coordinate all of the above functions. 
and grief, distress, and acceptance seem to be two sides of a coin, and the rise and fall of each one tends to look like waves across days, weeks, and months. The relative increase in acceptance as compared to the relative decline of grief distress does happen, but it's over a long period of time. And this journey doesn't typically have a clear beginning, middle, or end as we may wish for. But maybe the goal is not just to get over your grief, but restoring a fulfilling life, a life different than the one you had before. Now, this is not an easy thing to do and requires great courage and flexibility, asking our brain to learn new things by paying attention to what we actually find meaningful and satisfying in the present moment. This shift can also lead to a life of love and freedom and contentment. It will be a different life than we had before. Death has a brutal way of clarifying to us what is meaningful. During grieving, we're sometimes redefining our identity based on what the brain is learning about our new world and what we enjoy and we find worthwhile. Canadian neuroscientist Dr. Edward Tulving did studies to prove that when we have clear memories from our past, we can call upon them to build our future. When memories from the past are foggy, it's difficult to build a future idea around these memories. Our past memories and projecting our future ideas use the same neural machinery. Scientists also prove that people with complicated grief have trouble remembering past events unless their loved one was in that memory. As well, they have difficulty projecting into the future events unless those events include their loved one. So in our example, widower number two fell into this issue where they focused mostly on their late wife when they thought of memories of the past and plans of the future. For example, in my case, I also include being a parent, a grandparent, a friend, a neighbor, a volunteer, an athlete, etc. So my thought process isn't clouded or deeply affected by solely focusing on my late wife. For me, this ability allows me to make a few future plans and try some things, some things that work and some things that don't, but it's all part of me trying to redefine who I am. Dr. Margaret Strobe and Dr. Hank Schutt from the Netherlands define the dual process model of coping with bereavement. In this model, we see that time off from grieving happens and it might look like denying or suppressing or distracting oneself from our feelings about the death. And it sometimes can be presumed to be a bad thing, but actually time off from grieving can give our minds and our body a break from the stress of this emotional upheaval. The key to coping well after our loss sometimes is flexibility, attending to what is happening day to day, and also being able to focus on coping with whatever stressors have currently reared their ugly head. Grieving people also have times where they are not consumed by grief, when they're simply engaged in everyday experiences. For some of us, setting a bit of grief time aside each day is all we can handle. Each day, if we can add a bit more grief focus, then we can continue our upward spiral trajectory.
come into contact with death when we lose a loved one can be overwhelming. But if we could now understand deeply and truly that people we love can disappear forever, it changes how we love, what we believe, and what we value. Now, I'd like to thank all the neuroscientists for their commitment to this research and sharing their results. And again, most of the words said today were from Dr. O'Connor. Now, what are some of the things I've learned from studying neuroscience around grief and grieving? Death presents a very significant problem for our brain to solve, and it can't solve it quickly. Our hippocampus map needs to be updated to reflect this new reality, and this remapping takes a long time. Thinking of grief as an educational journey is something we can relate to and may help us. Reinforcing that being in the present moment can help our brain deal with loss. And this gradual upward spiral trajectory is oftentimes a sign of healthy grieving. And for me, the difference between grieving 24 years ago and the grief I'm in now can be explained by the remapping that took place in my hippocampus over the last two decades. If it works for me, there's a good chance it will work for you. Dr. O'Connor once wrote, Once you've experienced deep grieving, you walk through a doorway to a whole community of people that you would otherwise never have understood or empathized with. You probably would not choose this door if the choice was yours. And yet here you are on the other side with knowledge about yourself and a marvelous brain that you can utilize to build and navigate a new world. First of all, I'd like to offer a big shout out to Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, a pioneer neuroscientist working on grief and grieving. As well, I'd like to acknowledge David Kessler for his ideas about the isolated grief island and the grief river, Dr. Andrew Huberman, Dr. Endel Tolving, Margaret Strobe, and Henry Shute for the dual process model, and also the Grief Recovery Institute.